oh, Heavenly Father, we just so desperately need you. We can't do this. We can't uh, know what to say. We can't say it right. We can't uh, get to the hearts and minds. Father, only you can do it. And so we desperately need your help, and we plead for your help this morning. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Carl Grant was representing the United States at Osaka, Japan for a table, uh, table tennis tournament. And the evening before the tournament began, he was uh, out there uh, in the area where they were having the ping pong tables and things, and he, was, he struck up a conversation with one of the, the uh, people from the Chinese delegation. And as they were talking, you know, they were kind of bantering back and forth, and you know, they decided, hey, you know, it's not the competition yet, that starts tomorrow, but let's just play a game together and see how things go. And you know what Carl Grant said to himself? He says, I don't care if this is official or not, I'm going to beat this guy, right? Because this is uh, a guy from the Chinese delegation, and if you don't know about uh, table tennis, the Chinese sometimes are the best players in all the world. And so he said, I'm going to do everything I can to beat this player tonight. And he put all of his energy and all of his effort and all of his expertise and all of his training, he put it all into that one little game and he just barely eked out a win. And he was so happy, he went back to his players, his teammates, and he said, you know what? I just played a game with one of the guys from the Chinese delegation and I won. And you know what they said? Uh, I doubt it. You're just not that good. He said, no, no, I did. I really did. And so the next day, to prove it, he took his team over to where the Chinese were getting ready. And he said, hey, you guys, I played one of you last night. And I won. And my teammates don't believe me. So hey, just help me out here, OK? And so the guy he was talking to says, well, who was it? And he said, well, I don't see him here yet. But oh, there he is. And at that very moment, the guy was walking towards the team. And uh, the Chinese player says, oh, yes, that's Mr. Chen. He's our cook. My friends, self laughs at us in our efforts to beat it. We cannot conquer self. We may die to self, but my friends, self does not die. When self is taken off the throne of our life, it is relegated to the deepest dungeons, but it still calls out, cries out, I want to be reinstated on the throne. And even getting it off the throne is impossible for us. We can't do it. Self laughs at us. Self is intertwined around every fiber of our being. We are addicted to selfishness, to selfish ways. That is why everyone who enters the pearly gates of the city of God will enter there as a conqueror, and his greatest conquest will have been the conquest of self. Isn't that an amazing statement? So how can we fight self? That's what we're here to answer this morning. How can we fight self? The answer is given by Jesus to Nicodemus, very short and clear and concise. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, you cannot patch up your old self and fix it. Doesn't work. That which is born of the flesh will always be flesh. The key to getting victory over self has to be a transformation, a miraculous, supernatural transformation of the Holy Spirit. And that makes sense, you know, in a lot of ways when you think about it. You know, before we give ourselves wholly to God, we are walking the broad road. We are, um, the Holy Spirit is working on us. 
But the Holy Spirit has limited access to us because of our free will. But when we are converted, when we give ourselves wholly to God, then the Holy Spirit is no longer just working on us. He is dwelling and working in us. And it's the devil who has limited access to us. And the difference is transformational. An Englishman and, a, and his uh, American friend were standing at uh, Niagara Falls. And the American said to the Englishman, hey, you know what? Would you like to see the greatest unused power in the world today? And the Englishman said, sure, let's, let's, let's see that. So they went down the stairs to the bottom of the falls, and they looked up at this massive wall of water pouring over those falls. And the American says, that, my friend, is the greatest unused power in the world today. And you know what the Englishman said? He said, no, my friend. The greatest unused power in the world today is the Holy Spirit of the living God. And isn't that still true? Isn't that still true? The greatest unused power in the world today is the Holy Spirit of the living God. Trying to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit is like trying to start a lawnmower without a spark plug or without gas. It's not going to happen. In fact, what you're going to end up doing is end up sore and frustrated. My friends, if you are sore and frustrated in the Christian life, this may be the problem. Trying to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit is like trying to fly by flapping your legs. A caterpillar can't do it, and you can't do it. If you want to fly, what does a caterpillar have to do in order to fly? It needs to die and be transformed into something that flies naturally. Our sinful nature is the problem, and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in us is the only answer. Okay? So I've told you nothing you don't already know. You already knew this. This is common knowledge. So the question then becomes, okay, okay, we need the Holy Spirit, we knew that, thank you, but let's go on. What are we going to do to get the Holy Spirit? How in the world is it going to happen? We're not seeing the Holy Spirit poured out with power in our lives, even personally today, and we can, and we should. Why not? This is perhaps one of the most common questions that we have about the Christian life. How can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? And the answer is very simple. The answer is, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you must be emptied of self. That's it. The only prerequisite for receiving the Almighty God into our life so that he can be Almighty God in us is to let him. Is to get out of his way and let Almighty God be Almighty God. That's the prerequisite. That's it. Of course, that's a lot harder than it sounds. So I'd like to share with you three main principles of the Christian life. First, self is the problem. We saw that last night. Second, the Holy Spirit is the solution. We all knew that. Third, surrender is the key. Self is the problem. The Holy Spirit is the solution. And surrender is the key. But we cannot even surrender ourselves by ourselves. In fact, there's a principle I'd like you to learn. I'd like you to memorize this. It's two sentences. Here it is. Only God can do it. Only you and I can let him. My friends, no matter what the it is, whether it be faith, whether it be love, whether it be joy, whether it be peace, whether it be surrender, whether it be victory over sin, no matter what the it is in the Christian life, only God can do it. We know that. 
But because of our free will, only you and I can let him. God will not force his goodness upon us. We saw that last night. It's a little bit scary. God has given us a free will. And we have to let him, and that's what surrender is all about. Only God can do it. Only you and I can let him. How do we receive the Holy Spirit? The answer is simple. It's surrender. The Father giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. So with the followers of Christ. We can receive of heaven's light only as we are willing to be emptied of self. We cannot discern the character of God or accept Christ by faith unless we consent to the bringing into captivity of every thought to the obedience of Christ. To all who do this, what happens? The Holy Spirit is given to a, to a small extent. Is that what it says? No, without measure. Without measure. That, my friends, is the key. Self is the problem. The Holy Spirit is the solution. Surrender is the key. So, let's look for just a second at some of the foundation principles of the Christian life that can help us to understand the Holy Spirit a little bit better. First of all, when we start the Christian life, we, we start out with repentance. Repentance is the base of the backbone of the Christian life. Repentance means, Lord, I, I hate my sin. I don't want to sin. I want you to give me victory over sin. That repentance leads us to surrender. Surrender is saying, Lord, do whatever it takes to give me victory over sin, essentially. It's like, Lord, take, do whatever it takes to be almighty God in me. When we surrender ourselves wholly to God, something wonderful happens. Jesus justifies us. He covers us with his robe of righteousness. Right? We can't be resurrected to newness of life until we die first. The surrender has to happen before he can cleanse us by his blood and resurrect us to newness of life. And then, when Jesus covers us and makes us holy and we are empty, we become a temple and the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. My friends, here is the progression that must happen before we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes in, he does this wonderful supernatural work called conversion, which is changing us supernaturally from the inside. The first fruit of that Holy Spirit living in us is what? Love. Love for God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and love for others, which is the second great commandment. Love is the great motivator for obedience. And what do you think obedience is for? Is obedience to save us? No, obedience, salvation happens at the justification. That's salvation right there. So what's obedience for in the Christian life? It is part of the sanctification process. Obedience is God's tool to help us to become more like Jesus. This is Christ-centered obedience. This is Holy Spirit-inspired, Holy Spirit-enabled obedience is allowing God to transform our lives. And where does grace and faith come in? Well, it's all grace. Repentance is grace, surrender is grace, justification is grace, Holy Spirit is grace, love is grace, obedience is grace. It's all grace, and it's all through faith. Faith is the channel through all, which all of God's blessings flow. Now, I want you to notice something interesting about this progression in the Christian life. Where does the power of choice start? It starts at the very bottom in this repentance-surrender area, and surrender is the ultimate choice to give up our free choice. It is critical to this whole process. And what do you think the devil will do to keep us from enjoying the Christian life? What do you think? Where do you think he starts? Where do you think he works? Wouldn't it be nice, the devil says, if I can derail them in this one foundation element of the Christian life? Maybe I can get them so that they don't understand what it really is. Or maybe I can get them to think that they really are surrendered, but they're not. Whatever the devil can do, he says, I want to do it. I want to derail them here. And guess what happens when he succeeds? 
My friends, this is a snapshot of the first three decades of my sincere Christian life because I did not understand surrender. I did not know what it was, what it was about. And I did not know how to do it. I was, had tragic gaps in my understanding of this most fundamental, foundational aspect of the Christian life, and that's why we're here this morning. So here's our key phrase this morning. Only God can do it, only I can let him. Self is the problem, the Holy Spirit is the solution, surrender is the key. Let's read that out loud together. Only God can do it, only I can let him. Self is the problem, the Holy Spirit is the solution, Surrender is the key. That's the takeaway that I'd like for you to get this morning. If nothing, if you don't remember anything else, remember these five short sentences. Only God can do it. Only I can let him. No matter what that it is. We are told that if all were willing, all would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet we, we noticed last night that all are not willing. In fact, we are told that conversion is rare in this age of the church. The new birth is a rare experience, Ellen White tells us, in this age of the world. This is the reason why there are so many perplexities in the churches. Many, so many, who assume the name of Christ are unsanctified and unholy. They have been baptized, but they were buried alive. Self did not die, and therefore they did not rise to newness of life in Christ. My friends, this is my story right here. I was baptized around the age of 11 or 12. I didn't really understand surrender at that point. I did not give myself wholly to God. I was buried alive in baptism. Self did not die, and therefore I did not rise to newness of life in Christ. It took me three decades to find that out, to figure out what the problem was. It was the foundation element of surrender that nobody had taught me what it was and how it worked. And my desire, especially for the youth, is to give you a 20-year head start on me when it comes to learning that most important aspect of the Christian life. Conversion is often misunderstood. Many who speak to others of the need to, of a new heart do not themselves know what is meant by these words. The youth especially stumble over this phrase, a new heart. They do not know what it means. They look for a special change to take place in their feelings. This they term conversion. Over this error, thousands have stumbled to ruin, not understanding the expression, you must be born again. And she goes on. Satan leads people to think that because they have felt a rapture of feeling. There's that word feeling again. Have you noticed that? Feeling is not a good indicator of anything in your Christian life. That's not what it's there for. They think because they have this rapture of feeling, they are converted. But their experience has not changed. Their actions are the same as before. Their lives show no good fruit. They pray often and long and are constantly referring to the feelings they had at such time. But they do not live the new life. They are deceived. Their experience goes no deeper than feeling. My friends, conversion is rare in the latest and age of the church. All around us, our peers, our parents, and even our pastors sometimes aren't converted because we don't understand it, we don't know what it is, we don't know how it works, and we haven't let God have it all, all at once. Self is the problem, the Holy Spirit is the solution, surrender is the key. So what I'd like to do right now is I'd like to talk about surrender. How many of you have ever heard that word surrender before, anybody? How many of you have ever heard that word a thousand times before? Everybody? Right? 
We talk a lot about surrender. You can hardly go to a sermon or read a, an article in the Adventist Review that doesn't talk about surrender. And yet, although we talk a lot about surrender, we don't often say a lot about it. What really is it? How does it work in practical terms? What does it look like in my life? How can I become surrendered? How can I know if I am surrendered? How can I stay surrendered once I get there? All of these foundation questions I did not understand until three decades after my baptism. Hopefully you understand these better than I do, but if you don't, let's look at these a little bit more. I'd like to start by asking the question, what is surrender? Sometimes surrender is a little bit difficult to um, define. If somebody came up to you and said, okay, in one sentence, at a practical level, what is surrender? Well, one of my favorite definitions come from the story of Charles Finney. He was a 19th century evangelist and a revivalist, and after one of his revival meetings, a, uh, a guy came up to him and he handed him an official looking document. And later on, when he looked at that document, he realized that it was a legal stop claim deed that the guy had filled out in favor of God. In other words, he had legally, officially, stopped claim to himself in favor of God. He had given God everything. He had given God all of his choices, all of his property, all of his time, all of his money, all of his energy. He had given it to God. Another one of my favorite definitions of surrender is drowning in the will of the Almighty. You know why I like this definition so much? Because drowning is so easy and natural and comfortable. Right? No, no, we fight drowning. We gasp and we gurgle and we struggle and we call out, Lord, save me. And unfortunately, part of that saving process is drowning. And he will save us from drowning, but that's not good for us because then we will not be surrendered. Another one of my favorite definitions of surrender is getting out of the way of the Almighty God so that he can be Almighty God in me. Because of our free choice, God doesn't get to be Almighty God in us unless we let him. And that's what surrender is all about. But here's a more formal definition, a more full definition. Surrender is a spirit-inspired, spirit-enabled, settled commitment to give God all my choices in every area of my life all the time. For you English majors, you notice there's a lot of superlatives in that sentence. That's surrender. It's a very superlative type of topic. But what I like about this particular definition is that it shows that it is the Holy Spirit who originates, inspires, and enables this whole process. Another thing I like about this definition is that it is a settled commitment. Surrender is not something you do during this emotional high or spiritual high on Sabbath morning and then give up the next day. That's not surrender. Surrender, in fact, is best um, achieved when you are stone cold sober emotionally. You have counted the costs. You know what you're getting into, and you're saying, Lord, I commit. I want you to be Lord and master of all my choices from this day forward and forever. That is a commitment that is a settled commitment. It doesn't go away easy. It doesn't come easy, and it doesn't go easy. And it's all about choices. Of course, surrender is all about choices because choices is the only power we have. It's about giving those choices back to God. Perhaps one reason why surrender is sometimes hard to understand is that it's both an event and it's a process. It's an event in that there, there has to be some time in our life when we actually make that commitment. When we say, okay, Lord, right now, starting now, my life is yours. That is the event 
of surrender. But it's also a process. Surrender also has some process aspects to it. In fact, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross every week or month or so, right? No, it's a daily process. And follow me, Jesus says. One of uh, the best illustrations, I think, of, of surrender is marriage. Marriage also is an event and a process. It also has to do with a commitment, right? But for those of you who um, know that the marriage ceremony, which is the event of marriage, is not the end of marriage, right? It's just the beginning. There's also something to do uh, afterwards, isn't there? There's this getting to know each other. There's this, this understanding how each other works, working together as a team that comes as part of that marriage process. So marriage, like surrender, has both the event of surrender and it has the process of surrender. But, my friends, and this is key right here, neither marriage nor surrender is a process in the sense that we commit adultery less and less. Think about that for a second. Neither marriage nor surrender is a process in the sense that we commit adultery less and less. If I was standing at the altar with my bride-to-be, and I said to her, I will commit myself 80% to you, how well do you think that would go over? Well, I can tell you, any woman worth marrying would be finding the nearest exit, right? And if I called out to her, okay, 90%, 90%, would that help? Surrender, like marriage, is 100% commitment in everything, all the time. But sometimes we as Christians, especially in the Laodicean age of the church, seem to think that it's okay to commit adultery in front of the Almighty God. We say things like, well, you know, I know this is not a bad choice. I know it's not God's choice. You know, I know it's not healthy for me. I know it's not what he would want me to watch or, or do. But, you know, it's just a little thing, and besides, God isn't finished with me yet. Have you ever heard someone say that? It's just a little thing, and besides, God isn't finished with me yet. My friends, that is one of the most insidious statements in all of Christendom. That is giving yourself an excuse to disobey and dishonor the Almighty God. It's just a little thing, and besides, God isn't finished with me yet. Isaiah <coughs> tells us this. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Now, my friends, in this passage, there are two very important verbs. One is an event verb, and one is a process verb. Can you tell me what those two verbs are? I'll give you a hint. They're highlighted in blue. Right? Cease. Which one is the... Is that an event or a process? It's an event. You come to the end of the cliff, you say, okay, I'm going to stop now. You don't keep going. Learn. Is that an event or a process? It's a process. So surrender has both the event and it has the process, and both of those pieces is critically important because surrender is all or nothing all at once. A lot of people believe that surrender means that you say, okay, Lord, uh, I've got a lot of bad habits in my life, a lot of bad choices. I know they're bad, and I'm going to give you God, I'm going to give you two of them, okay? And I want you to give me victory over those two. And when we're done, then we'll talk about the other bad choices in my life. That's what, a lot of, that's what I did most of my life. I thought that was how it worked. And guess what? Three decades later, I still had the first two. Not gotten victory over those. Because surrender doesn't work that way. Surrender is all or nothing all at once. You give God every choice, and he says, okay, I give you victory. 
Now, I'm talking about the power of choice, the, the power of choice that God has given us. I'm not talking about unintentional sins. I'm not talking about unknown sins. I'm talking about chosen sin. Those things which we know are not God's will, and we do them anyway, and we try to mollify our consciences by saying, well, it's just a little thing. And besides, God hasn't done this with me yet. Someone once made the startlingly obvious statement that large canyons are not crossed by a series of small jumps. Do you agree with that statement? If this guy would to stand up right there where he was and say, hey, I'm going to cross this canyon and I'm going to do it with a series of small jumps. So he gets on the edge there and he makes his first small jump. What happens? Splat. End of story, right? Doesn't go any farther than that. It doesn't work. And surrender is the same way. It is an all or nothing leap of faith where we say, Lord, all my choices and every aspect of my life are yours all the time. I commit them to you. There are some who seem to be always seeking for the heavenly pearl, but they do not make an entire surrender of their wrong habits. They do not die to self that Christ may live in them. Therefore, they do not find the precious pearl. They have not overcome unholy ambition and their love for worldly attractions. And she goes on. They do not take up the cross and follow Christ in the path of self-denial and sacrifice. Almost Christians, yet not fully Christians. They seem near the kingdom of heaven, but they cannot enter there almost, but not wholly saved, means to be not almost, but wholly lost. My friends, there is an important principle in the, in the concept of surrender, and that is, there is no little bad choice. There is no little sin. Surrender is all or nothing, all at once. <clears throat> On February 1, 2003, the spaceship Columbia disintegrated over large parts of Texas and Louisiana as it was coming in for a landing. And it did this because there was, had been a little hole created in one of the wings 15 days earlier when it was taking off. 82 seconds after launch, a piece of foam came off of the big tank and hit one of the wings and created this little hole. And that little hole didn't cause any problem for a while. They got to space, no problem. They did all their work in space, no problem. But as they were coming down for, the, for a landing, the, the compressed and heated gases became like a plasma torch and went into that little hole and melted the wing from the inside because of that one little hole. My friends, it's the same way in Christian life. There is no such thing as a little sin. If we give the devil the smallest chink, he will slither in and undo the power of God in our lives. You know what's really tragic about this, the spaceship Columbia problem? And that is that 17 years earlier, the spaceship Challenger had also blown up on launch. And it was also for a very known reason. The, the, um, the, the foam coming off of the spaceship was a known issue for Columbia. It had happened four times before, but they said, well, you know, it hasn't hurt anything yet, right, until it did. And then Challenger, 17 years earlier, they had the same problem. They had this O-ring problem, and they would analyze the rockets after they got them back from the ocean, and say, hey, look, the, um, the jet came through this crack and, and into this O-ring area, and it didn't make it all the way through, but it almost did. And this happened for three or four flights until they said, well, you know, it's not that really big of a deal. It gets in there a little bit, but that's okay. It's not a problem. Until it was, and the spaceship Challenger blew up. A sociologist went into NASA to try to figure out what was happening that was causing these types of, of, of destruction of the spaceships. And she coined a new phrase. It is called the normalization of deviance. <clears throat> in other words, Things that are bad and that are known to be bad become normal. Does that sound like uh, one of the seven churches that you know of? Right? Don't we have that same problem? Haven't we said, hey, you know, everybody's doing this. 
My peers are doing this. My parents are doing this. My pastor's even doing this. Therefore, it must be normal. We have this normalization of deviance problem where we say it's just a little thing. It's expected. Everybody's doing it. And besides, God isn't finished with me yet. Someone once said, if God is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And that's true. In the, in the Christian life, we do not belong to Christ unless we are his 100%. Let none deceive themselves with the belief that they can become holy while willfully violating two or three of God's requirements. Is that what it says? One requirement. The commission of a known sin silences the witnessing voice of the Spirit and separates the soul from God. My friends, this is my testimony. For all of my life, I thought that it was normal to make known bad choices. I thought that was still surrender. I did not realize that surrender is all or nothing, all at once, by God's grace. And this misunderstanding of mine kept me in spiritual poverty for three decades after my baptism. For three decades after my baptism, I was not converted. I never had that deep love for God and for being with him and for experiencing him. A seven-year-old boy whose, whose uh, name was, ironically, Christian, emailed Santa Claus and he said this. He said, how bad can I be before I lose my presence? You know, we laugh at that, but do we say the same thing to God? Do we say, yeah, wow, you know, can I do this and still be saved? Or is that a salvation issue? My friends, everything is a salvation issue if it's separating you from Jesus. Anything can be a salvation issue if you know it's not God's will and you're doing it anyway. Instead of asking the question, how much can I get away with? Shouldn't we be asking the question, wow, Lord, how much more can I give you? How much more can I honor you? How much more can I glorify you? By your power and your spirit, how much more? The Holy Spirit is the power of every Christian. And when we see the hopeless mire of the self-problem and then recognize the good news that God can do it if we let him, we cry out like the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My friends, that is the good news. What we're talking about is the problem of self, which is a problem that cannot be overcome by ourselves. We can't do it. In fact, any good thing in the Christian life, only God can do it. But only you and I can let him. That's what the power of choice is all about. Only God can do it. Only I can let him. Self is the problem. The Holy Spirit is the solution. Surrender is the key. Now I have one minute before I close. And with that one minute, I would like to tell you how to surrender. This is the one-minute version. I have a, a whole presentation called How to Die and Do It Right on my website that I recommend that you go and you look at. But if you want to know right now, if you're curious, how can I surrender myself to Jesus like I've never done before? Maybe you're looking at your life and you're saying, hey, wow, maybe I never did really surrender. Here's the one-minute version. You go to God in prayer and you say, Lord, I don't want to surrender. That's the first step. Lord, I don't want self-denial. I don't want self-sacrifice. I don't want to give up my choices. I don't want discomfort. I want to, to live my way. Be very honest with God. And then you say, but Lord, 
I also want to love you with all my heart and mind and soul and strength. I want to, to experience the kingdom, the joy, the peace that you offer me right now. I'm not willing to give up my selfish desires and tendencies and choices, but I'm willing to be made willing. Lord, I'm willing to be made willing. And you know what? If you can't honestly say that to God, I'm willing to be made willing, that's okay. Step one, back, and say, Lord, I'm willing to be made willing to be made willing to surrender. <laughs> it's okay. And if that doesn't work, take another step back. Lord, I'm willing to be made willing to be made willing to be made willing. It doesn't matter how far back you go. At some point, it becomes a choice. And you have the power of choice. It is the power that God has given you. You can say, Lord, I choose for you to make me willing. And that's the first step. Keep pleading with God to make you willing. And one day, you'll wake up willing and able to do the impossible thing, making that settled commitment to give God all of your choices in every area of your life all the time. That's the short version. This evening at 7.30, I'd like to share with you how this actually played out in my personal experience. I'd like to share with you my story, how God finally got me to that, that point, and how he transformed my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we are so grateful for the power of choice. The choice that we have to let you be Almighty God in us. The choice that we have, Father, to let you conquer self, to empty us of self, and to fill us with your Spirit. Father, these are great and precious privileges and promises. And I pray that each one of us who's in this room today will grab hold of those promises, take advantage of those privileges, and give ourselves 100% unreservedly, unresistingly, unrelentingly given to God. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.